Good morning, Deer Creek. Let's pray together, then we'll dive into our teaching, Mark chapter 11. Let's pray. Father, uh, what we sang is true. You were, you are, you always will be God. You, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, have eternally reigned, the God of the universe. You're sovereign over everything. You know us by name. And God, we come to you now. We want to hear from you. We're opening up your word. We want to hear you speak. We want you to speak into our lives. We want you to encourage us, lift our eyes, help us see you and uh, your great work of redemption that you have wrought to undeserving creatures, undeserving sinners like ourselves. So would you open our eyes, illuminate your truth, and impress it upon our hearts. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus, your son, by the power of your spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. Well, this morning I want to do something a little bit different. I want to begin with a little bit of a detour. Before we dive into Mark chapter 11, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 11. Before we do that, I want to take a little bit of a detour because like many of you this week, on Monday morning at around 10 a.m., I heard through the grapevine these stories that there had been again an active shooter at an elementary school in our country, a shooter who had taken the lives of three children and three adults and I have to admit, I hear that information, and because I have such a callous heart, I heard that information, and it was really just general news. I just continued about on my day. I didn't even think twice, because in my callous heart, stories like this have just become normal. They become so normalized, they can almost become just background noise, because of the frequency with which they occur. But in about a half an hour, at about 10.30, I heard that these shootings occurred in Nashville, the city where my wife Hannah and I lived for the first six, seven years of our marriage, the city where my two oldest children were born. And once I heard that, what began as just background noise all of a sudden became front of mind. And shortly after that, I learned that the school that was targeted for these shootings was the Covenant School. It was a school that was just 10 minutes south of where Hannah and I lived in Nashville. It was a school connected to a church that was part of our denomination, Covenant Presbyterian Church, part of the Presbyterian Church in America. And what started as background noise and went to front of mind, immediately I found myself immersed in the turmoil of that morning and hearing about these three students and these three adults who lost their lives. I saw pictures flooding in of friends that I knew, friends like Matt Bradley, friends like Nathan McCall, Phil Roach. These are men who are pastors in the area and they were there as any pastor should be, comforting families. And then I heard the names of the two of the victims. One of them was Hallie Scruggs I remember her dad, Chad Scruggs, who was a pastor at Covenant Presbyterian Church, who sat across the table from me as he was moving to Nashville and telling the whole presbytery, all of these other pastors, how excited he was to start this new work, to come into Nashville to work at Covenant, and talking about how his family was just happy to be in Nashville. Another victim was a woman named Catherine Kuntz. Catherine was a member of our home church in Nashville, West End Community Church. She helped me create this study for families to help children uh, be discipled by their parents. So what started out as this background noise 
immediately became a day of turmoil. And if you're anything like me, you heard this. And what you said is, when will this end? When will this stop? Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Save us. Save us now. When is this going to end? When will this stop? And I thought, as I was going to bed that night, you know, we hear this as background noise. But throughout the Bible, this is never background noise. This turmoil, this chaos is never background noise. In fact, it's just assumed. It's assumed from the very beginning of the Bible. All you have to do is flip open to Genesis chapter 1 and we see there, God did not create a world of turmoil. God created a world filled with life, a world of peace. The Hebrew word for peace is this word Shalom. It means a perfect interconnectedness where all of creation, everything in creation from the sky to the sea to animals to birds to human beings are all interwoven in perfect harmony in shalom and peace. If you've ever seen like a Persian rug, you know that a Persian rug is made by hand and it is so intricately interwoven that These thousands upon thousands of fibers are all working to make this ornate design, to make this vivid rug. These fibers are so interconnected that you can't pull one of those fibers out without distorting the rest of the piece. That's how God created the world. Everything in creation, perfectly woven together in shalom, peace. That's his original creation. But if you know the story... Past Genesis chapter 1, you know that that peace was short-lived. You know that Adam and Eve turned their backs against God and they brought this good world of peace and ushered in death, curse. They ushered in turmoil. And from that moment on, Genesis chapter 3, the fall of Adam and Eve, up until today, April 2nd, 2023, every moment, every day, every hour has been warped and distorted by turmoil. And you see, immediately following Adam and Eve's rebellion, God's world of peace is now warped with this pain in childbearing, crushing labor. Death is brought into God's world of life. Then you just go one page over, Genesis chapter 4, and you see Cain, the first child of Adam and Eve, in jealousy in a rage against his brother Abel, who has God's favor, he murders him in cold blood and then tries to dispose of his body, thinking nobody will ever see it. It gets worse from there. Flip over one more page. Genesis chapter 5. Sexual orgies, injustice, hatred, pride, polygamy. All of that has been flooded into God's good creation. And what began as this local rebellion, one couple turning their backs against God, what began as a local turmoil has spread to all humanity. So much so that God looks down at the world that he's made, his once world filled with life and peace. And he says, Genesis chapter six, verse five, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted, he regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him in his heart. 
the turmoil introduced by Adam and Eve's rebellion has now distorted God's good world beyond recognition. All they did is pull one fiber. And the whole thing is brought to destruction. And we're just in Genesis chapter 6. <laughs> Don't even mention continue reading on. Here we are thousands of years later. And the turmoil just feels commonplace. It feels normal. It's background noise. We live in a world that is, actually we live in a country that is the wealthiest country in human history with the lowest infant mortality rate known to man, with the greatest access to health care that the world has ever known. And even though life has improved in countless ways, we realize that it's still all warped in some way, isn't it? 2020 to 2022, the rate of depression among 18 to 29-year-olds was the highest in recorded history. That speaks to many of us in this room this morning. Maybe you're in that place. On average in the United States, there are somewhere between 600,000 to 930,000 abortions performed in the U.S. each year. Again, maybe that affects you this morning. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Since 1975, the divorce rate eclipsed in 1975. It finally eclipsed 50%. Since that time, the divorce rate has never dropped below 48% up to this day. When will this end? Come, Lord Jesus, save us. We've destroyed your world. But here's the remarkable thing. God, into this landscape, this tarnished landscape backdrop of darkness, evil, and turmoil, God held out this promise to humankind. And you see this in Genesis chapter 15. There was this man named Abraham. God, into this turmoil, extends this promise to Abraham, telling him, there's a king who's going to come. One day, a descendant of Abraham would come, and where we have brought turmoil, God will one day bring a king who will restore peace. Where Adam ushered in sin, God will one day bring righteousness and justice and blessing. Where Adam and Eve brought evil and death, God will bring shalom again. And as time marches on from Abraham, all of a sudden God again enters into history and he extends this promise to a man named David. Many of you know David. David was the king of Israel. He was this great king of the Old Testament. And God tells David, this king is coming through you. He actually enters into a covenant with David and he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you die, David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Meaning he's going to bring people from every tribe, tongue, nation, people group. He's going to create a household, a people of God. He, I will create a house for your name. And I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So you can imagine these people who have been groaning under the turmoil of life in a fallen creation finally think, yes, this is finally going to end. It's finally going to stop. God is going to send the king that he promised to Abraham. He's coming through David. 
But years go by, a king raises up, a king falls down, a king raises up, a king falls down, and again, the people fall into despair. And that's when God has to come again to his people and say, no, the king is coming. It is imminent. 500 years after the time of David, God visits a man named Zechariah and he says, the king is imminent. He is coming. And he says this, we began our service with it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So thank you for your patience. That's the detour. We had to lay that groundwork to get here. Our text this morning, Mark chapter 11. Because in Mark chapter 11, we're going to see very clearly in our text this morning, two things, two things very distinctly, very clearly that we want to walk out of here celebrating and rejoicing just as they did on this day. Point number one, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. He is the king promised to Abraham, David, Zechariah. He is the king of peace. Secondly, we'll see Jesus is not just the king, but Jesus is the king that we need. Those are our two points this morning. Let's look at our text. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, we read, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, why are you doing this? Why are you untying the colt? And they thought, and they told them what Jesus had said and, let the, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of God. Jesus is the king. Up to this point in Mark, remember, this is Mark chapter 11. And at this point, Jesus has been journeying on to Jerusalem. And this begins Jesus' last week of his earthly life in Jerusalem. Remember, up to this point, we have seen hints to this very fact that Jesus is king. Mark has been very intentional about dropping these hints. These hints of Jesus' kingship have been demonstrated in his teaching up to this point, nobody had ever taught with the power and authority of Jesus. In fact, we read that one of Jesus' very first teachings, he's teaching in this synagogue, and he's casting out demons as well. And as he's teaching, immediately as he wraps up, the crowd is sitting there, they're spellbound. And we're told that as Jesus wraps up this teaching, everyone looks on and we read that they were all amazed so that they question among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Most of the teachers during Jesus' day, you have to realize this, these would be rabbis, they'd be scribes, teachers of the law. They always taught concerning God. They always taught about God. Jesus, on the other hand, he taught as God. 
he came and spoke and said things like this. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus would teach and he'd say things like, You have heard it said of those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Or in another place, Jesus said, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus speaks as God. You've heard it said by the rabbis, the scribes, the teachers of the law. They talk about God. You've heard it said, but I say to you as God, this is the case. This is the reality. That's their interpretation of the law. This is God's interpretation of the law. He teaches with the authority of God as God's king. And there are other hints that Jesus is king sprinkled throughout Mark's gospel, right? There's this time where Jesus is in a boat with his disciples and this, you know, tempest sweeps through the Sea of Galilee, so much so that waves are pounding against the boat. They're threatening to capsize the size of the boat and bring the disciples and Jesus to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. And then the disciples, in fear of their lives, they cry out to Jesus, Jesus, aren't you going to do something? Because Jesus is sleeping in the back, because he's Jesus, right? Aren't you going to do something for this? And Jesus stands up, Mark chapter 4, verse 39, he says, Awaking, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And no sooner had the words left his mouth that we read, And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Jesus reigns and rules with the power of God, the power and authority of God as king. When he speaks, creation obeys. He speaks once, and it is done. This is the complete opposite of what happens in my household, by the way. <laughs> you know, I thought I'd do this the other day just to kind of test my daughter Jane, because my daughter Jane is three years old, and she's going through the terrible threes. And... Uh, Jane is the type of girl who's just distracted at everything. So I thought to myself, I'm going to calculate how many times it takes for me to say something and then get the desired outcome. So we're sitting at the breakfast table and I, I asked Jane, Jane, go upstairs and get dressed for the day, please. And she says, okay, gets down off of her chair, goes and lets out Lucy, our family dog, gets down on her knees and lets Lucy, you know, lick all the cinnamon and crumbs and all the butter off of her face. After she's done with that, I have to tell her, Jane, Remember what I said, go upstairs, get your clothes on. She goes a little bit further, gets distracted. Jane, go upstairs, get your clothes on. Jane, go upstairs, get your clothes on. On and on and again. 17 times. That's how many times it took. I counted it. 17 commands before obedience. But <laughs> that says more about her than me, I promise. <laughs> Maybe. Jesus, though, he speaks once. And it is done. And all these hints that Jesus is king, his command, his authority, sprinkled throughout Mark. And there's this puzzling thing that happens. If you read through Mark, and as we have, you've noticed Jesus does this. Every time Jesus drops one of these hints to his kingship, his authority, he strictly charges people, don't tell anybody about me. Don't tell anyone. Don't 
tell anyone what you saw, don't make me known. All of that changes. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem. You see this in verse 1, and he's standing on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives overlooks the temple in Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives would have been about 800 feet above the height of Jerusalem, and it overlooks the temple. And as Jesus is overlooking the temple, he sends two of his disciples ahead. And he says to them, go into the village in front of you. Immediately as you enter it, you're going to find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it to me. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. By the way, if you're stealing something, don't try this. It's not going to work. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt back to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. What's Jesus doing here? Why is he spending so much time telling his disciples about this colt that they need to prepare? Why does Mark Take all this space to recount this cult. If you follow it closely, look again. Verse 2, it says, go into the village, you will find a cult. Verse 4, and they went away and found a cult tied at a door. Bystanders then say to the disciples in verse 5, why are you doing this? Why are you untying the cult? And then verse 7, they brought the cult to Jesus threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, all of a sudden what he's doing here in this very symbolic fashion is he is making all the secrecy that was surrounding his kingship completely evaporate. Jesus is coming out in full. All the hints are coming together. Jesus is slowing down and saying, I am the true king, the king promised by God. Remember, that's exactly what Zechariah said, didn't he? Remember that prophecy 500 years before Jesus even came? Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, overlooking the temple. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is this king. And the kingdom has finally arrived here on this colt, the foal of a donkey. All of God's plans are starting to come together. I don't know if you guys are fans of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as I am. There's this amazing scene as Jadis, who's the white witch, she's the, the queen over Narnia, this evil queen. She's reigned in Narnia and made winter persist for thousands and thousands of years. There's no end in sight. All of Narnia is in this deep freeze, this deep turmoil. Halfway through the book, though, as uh, Aslan enters in to Narnia, Jadis is hurrying on her sled to go and battle Aslan. And as she does, something strange begins to happen. All of the sudden, she's riding and the sun breaks through the clouds of winter. She's riding and the snow begins to turn into slush. Green grass is coming up through the slush. Rivers can be heard in the distance starting to thaw and flow downstream. The sled is stopping in its tracks. It can't go anymore because it's no longer on snow. And Jadis, the witch, she's frustrated. She's furious. She yells out, what's going on? What's happening? And one of her black dwarfs responds, this is spring. What are we to do? Your winter is melting, your majesty. 
This is Aslan's doing. He's in Narnia after all. Aslan breaks in and winter melts. That's the scene here. That's the scene here as Jesus is making known he has arrived at the long-awaited promise from Abraham, David, through Zechariah, has finally broken in. The winter is beginning to dissolve and come to an end. The king of peace has come. And once this scene is set, once the secrecy is forgotten, and Jesus is making this known to everybody, all of a sudden, Jesus is coming and we see the kind of king that the people expected, or at least the kind of king that people wanted. You see that in the symbolism surrounding verse 8. As Jesus is coming in to Jerusalem, we read in verse 8 that many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the field. So begin with these first ones. They spread these cloaks on the road. See, some years after David, who was the king of Israel, went off the scene after he had died, there were two new kings who took his place. One man named Joram, also pronounced Jehoram if you're reading the Old Testament, and another king, Azariah. And if you're reading these stories, everything suggests that these are awful kings, wicked kings, rebellious kings, engaging in idolatry, engaging in injustice, engaging in oppression. Joram is actually the son of King Ahab and, the king, and uh, his, his mother, whose name is Jezebel. If you know anything about Jezebel, she is the foil of the Old Testament. She is the dark spot, the uh, main antagonist to the people of God in the Old Testament. So God tells this prophet to take a horn of oil and go. Go anoint a new king. This new king he went to was this man named Jehu. And he goes to Jehu, anoints Jehu in secret, And as Jehu comes back to his friends, his friends are asking, what did that crazy prophet want? And he says, oh, you know, those crazy prophets, they just do all this weird stuff. And he poured oil on my head, stuff like that. And they're like, no, 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 what did he say? And Jehu says, he said that I'm to be the king over the people of God. And immediately as he says that, what happens is his friends take off their cloaks, they spread them on the ground, they put Jehu on the cloaks, and they shout out, Jehu is king. And right on cue, the first thing Jehu does is he mounts a horse as the new king. He invades Jerusalem with the sword. He kills both Joram and Azariah and Jezebel. And he comes, takes their thrones, and establishes justice in the land. And here is this crowd now, Thousands of years later, surrounding Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the ground, saying, this is the king as he enters Jerusalem. And notice what else is mentioned in verse 8. You notice how it says, others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. These palm branches, these were a symbol of victory, warfare, and justice. By the way, that's why we call this day Palm Sunday, is because of these palms, these palm branches, these leafy branches that they're throwing on the ground. These palm branches were a symbol of victory and justice and warfare. And this came from a man whose name was Simon Maccabeus. Simon Maccabeus led this Jewish revolt against this foreign empire 150 years earlier before Jesus came onto the scene. At that time, Jerusalem was under the power of this foreign empire. And Simon led this revolt, eventually overtook the city of Jerusalem by sword. He executed the foreign king, threw him out of the city, entered Jerusalem, and established justice. And in response to this victory, 
We read, this comes from a historical source called 1 Maccabees, which recounts this whole entire war. We read that the Jews entered Jerusalem with praise and palm branches, with harps and with cymbals, because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. As Jesus rides toward Jerusalem, the people expect this is going to be just like Jehu. This is going to be just like Simon Maccabeus. God is going to come in through Jesus and destroy evil now, destroy God's enemies now, bring justice now. That's what the people expect. That's what they want. And they want Jesus to come restore the fabric of creation, restore God's original peace. In short, the people want Jesus to bring his victorious kingdom now, bring peace and shalom through justice now. And we can understand that, can't we? Because we want the same thing. That's what I was praying for all week, especially on Monday night as I was laying my head on my pillow. I prayed, when will this end? Come, Lord Jesus, come now. Save us from this turmoil. Save us from evil. Conquer your enemies. Take the winter. Bring spring. Take this warped creation. Bring peace. Make the wrong right. Bring justice, your kingdom, in full. Now, please come. When will this end? And that's why the people are shouting out as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. You see the same expectation of the victorious king in the praises that they sing out. Look again at verse 9. It says that those who went before followed him and were shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna literally in Hebrew means save, save now, come now, I pray. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. You see what's happening. They're saying the king is coming into Jerusalem. The prophecy is being fulfilled. The eternal kingdom promised to our father David is coming. Hosanna in the highest. This is the time. How many of us want this? Four of us. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. I do have to ask you this, though. If Jesus was the victorious king bringing judgment to Jerusalem, wouldn't you think the first thing that he would do, he, he would enter Jerusalem, he'd go through the city gates, he'd bypass the temple, and he'd go directly to the palace of Herod Antipas, who was the ruler of the Jews during the time. And what would he do? He'd put Herod Antipas to death, finally entering his reign of tyranny. And then from there, he'd gather even more soldiers. And he would go directly toward those who held them in a deep stranglehold of captivity. He'd go directly to Pontius Pilate. He'd go to the governor who was over them in Judea. And he would recapture Jerusalem. He'd put Pontius Pilate to death. And he would reign. Palm branches would wave. And God's people would have peace. But that's not what Jesus does. In fact, there's this noticeable, there's this noticeable anticlimax, this noticeable drop-off in the triumphal entry. Did you see it in verse 11? It's really strange what happened. Jesus is riding in. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. <laughs> what started out is this grand triumphal entry. Here's the salvation. 
expectations that Jesus would be victorious king, all of this build up, and then, oh, not so much. Feels like a lot like rooting for the Denver Broncos. It's like, (laughs) Russell Wilson, we're going to win the NFC West. We're finally going to beat... The the Kansas City Chiefs, yes, Russell signed this massive extension, and then the season starts, and uh, okay, not so much. (laughs) Why this anticlimax? Why this drop-off? Why doesn't he go in and bring justice now? There's a simple reason. It's our second point, and this is what we're going to close with. The reason is very simple. The reason is because Jesus is the king we need. Jesus is the king, and Jesus is the king we need. There is the king the people expected, the king the people wanted, the king that we want, but instead God takes a detour. He bypasses his route that he should take directly to Herod, directly to Pontius Pilate, and he takes this detour, goes directly into the temple because he is the king that we need. You see, if Jesus were to bring his kingdom as a victorious kingdom and a victorious king now, what would that mean for people like us? Have you ever thought about that? If God came in judgment to destroy evil now, what would that mean for you and me? Remember what happened with Adam and Eve, what began as a local rebellion, pulling one fiber of God's good creation, spread out to all of humanity, and we read now, all of creation, Genesis 6, verse 5, all of humanity is warped and distorted by this turmoil. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is the descriptive verse of humanity. That's the descriptive verse of you and me. Evil, hatred, injustice, greed, rebellion, they're not just over there. In our enemies, they're in here, in us. The enemies of God are not just over there. The Romans, the Gentiles, Herod, Pontius Pilate, King Joram, King Azariah, the enemies of God are not just, if you're on this side of the aisle, The Democrats, or this side of the aisle, the Republicans. The enemies aren't the conservatives or the liberals. The unions, yeah, they're the ones. Or the corporations, the rich, the lazy. The enemy's not the minorities or the majority culture. No, apart from the grace of God, Genesis 6-5 Every intention of the human heart is only evil continually in you, a little bit in me, okay? (laughs) Out there, not just out there. No, in here. In here. So let me ask you again, if Jesus came as the victorious king to destroy all evil, who would be destroyed? Again, four of us, okay. (laughs) Just like Zechariah said, though, This is actually exactly how Zechariah said that the king would come. Zechariah 9, verse 9, if you continue to read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. 
Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the water, waterless pit. Jesus is the king. Not that we expected, not the king that we wanted, but he's the king that we need. He does not enter Jerusalem on a war horse, but on a colt. The foal of a donkey. Not to bring war, but to cut off the chariot and the war horse from Ephraim and Jerusalem. Not to punish God's enemies, you and me, but to speak peace over them. To speak forgiveness over them. Not to bring a sword, but to shed his own blood for our evil by the blood of the covenant. Not to bring punishment, but to set prisoners of sin and turmoil free from the waterless pit. A waterless pit would have been a dried out, a dried out well that during times of war, because the prisons were filled up with war criminals, they would drop common criminals into these waterless pits. Jesus is saying, in other words, he has come to Jerusalem not as the victorious king that we have expected, but as the humble king that we need, the king who will be crucified and destroyed in our place, entering the temple to make the sacrifice for sins that you and I desperately need if we are ever going to enter his kingdom. Jesus, in his first coming, in his triumphal entry, comes as the crucified king. And here's the blessed promise that he gives us. Just like the one that he made to Abraham, and to David, and then again through Zechariah, he has made us a promise that the king will come again, that this detour will not be permanent. Jesus will return and winter will melt away. Evil will finally and fully be removed. We will see Jesus again. And this time when he enters in his second coming, this time he will come as the victorious king and at his name every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is king. He will be crowned in victory and all who trust in him as king now, as the crucified king, will enter into his eternal kingdom, resurrected, given new life, singing Hosanna again. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who brings the kingdom promised to David. Hosanna in the highest. And on that day, every wrong will be made right. And God will finally bring shalom. The fabric of creation will be brought back together. And those who trust in him will enter his kingdom. That is the promise. And it will come one day. Chad Scruggs, who lost his daughter, Hallie, he was interviewed. Uh, he was interviewed and asked, what are your thoughts? And through tears, he said, we trust that our daughter is in the arms of Jesus, who will raise her to life once again. He will. And that day will come when our victorious king will be crowned with many crowns. And we will worship and adore him as the king that we need and the king that we want. Jesus said that's actually exactly what this table symbolizes. 
Jesus says that this table here is a foretaste of that coming kingdom where we will not just get a taste of his kingdom, but we will experience it in full. We will feast with Jesus as his followers and his citizens in his eternal kingdom. And so Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he stood with all of his disciples on that Thursday night, the last Thursday of his earthly life. And Jesus told his disciples, lifting the bread, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. And he broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And in like manner, after they had finished eating, Jesus took the cup, the cup of the blood of the covenant promised by Zechariah. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for the remission of all your sins because he was the savior and the king that we desperately need. And Jesus said these important words, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim his death until he comes again. And he will to wipe away every tear from our eyes and usher in his eternal kingdom in full. If you're a follower of Jesus, if he's your king, if you have faith in him and you trust in him, come and feast. Take a taste of the eternal kingdom to come. If that's not you this morning, we're a community of people who are not perfect and we do not pretend to be. We are people who recognize there is evil within us and we need a savior desperately. So if you have not said and confessed, Jesus is my Lord, he is my savior, he is my king, then do not come up and partake of this meal. Instead, place your faith in Jesus. Place your faith in him. Talk to an elder. All the people who are going to be serving communion this morning are elders. You can share with them how you want to receive Jesus into your life. And once you've done that, you can be baptized. And then you can come and feast and eat this meal. But for those of you who need refreshment, for those of you who need strength, until he comes again, your invitation is come. Feast on the Lord our God.